Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from one of our elders. There was once an older Christian couple who had been very active in their church. Many in their church thought that they were the epitome of excellence as far as Christians go. But they had a very, very dark secret. You see, they just could not get along with one another. They often would argue, and their arguing would often lead to things that should never have been said, thoughts that should never have been entertained, and sometimes even actions that should have never been done. After one particularly nasty verbal argument, where some very hasty, unkind, and malicious words were spoken, the wife came to her husband as he was sitting in the living room, and she said, We are Christians. We should not be fighting like this. Our continuing arguing and saying unkind words to one another must stop. If we are unwilling to stop this fighting, I think we should kneel beside the couch right now and ask God to take one of us home, and then I'll go live with my sister in Billings. (laughs) My friends, this couple's situation is not uncommon. Many couples struggle with arguing and not getting along. They may say that they love one another, but they cannot stop arguing and doing verbal combat. But whether you're married or not, whether you are a widow or a widower, interpersonal conflict is something that none of us are strangers to. Interpersonal conflict happens in the home between spouses, in the home between parents and children, in the home between children and children, in the workplace between colleagues, and sometimes conflict happens in places we least expect it. Conflict is ever-present in our lives. My friends, what I want to do today is to share with you how we can learn to minimize conflict in our lives. Even though we cannot completely eliminate it, we can do our part to live a better way. We can do a better job at handling conflict in a more positive way, and we can learn to respond to it more like Jesus. The Apostle James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflict among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body parts? In other words, the Apostle James is saying that the source of our quarrels and conflict is self selfishness, and pride. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. There are really two kinds of pride. A good pride that prompts a person to do the very best that they can at everything they do. This is the kind of pride that prompts a person to maintain good personal grooming habits so that they they look the very best that they can and others can't smell them coming 20 feet away. But there is also a pride that is self-destructive. This kind of pride keeps us from close personal relationships, and it causes us to be defensive, argumentative, and confrontational. This is the pride that Solomon was talking about when he says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. 
Years ago, I became friends with a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon, or not Charles Spurgeon, Charles Shepson. Spurgeon was dead long before I was born. <laughs> anyway, that door, you shouldn't have locked that door. <laughs> Years ago, I became friends with Charles Shepson. I guess he was more of a mentor to me than a friend. Even though I never attended St. Paul Bible College, I met him on the road and and then he came and preached at a church that I was pastoring. He had been dean of students at St. Paul Bible College, which is now called Crown College, our denomination's college in Minnesota. Dr. Shepson told me of a personally difficult time in his life when he was called to pastor a small church in a small community. There was, a, there was in that church a lady who had who provided a large percentage of the support for that church and as a result, a large percentage of his salary. The problem was that this lady was rather difficult. It was not uncommon for her to come into the pastor's office and complain about other members of the church. She didn't really want the pastor's help in overcoming her interpersonal conflict. She just wanted to complain. One day she was in his office talking about other people in a negative way when Dr. Shepson told me that he physically felt the Spirit of God come upon him, and he looked her right in the eye and, she, and he said, do you know what your problem is? And rather taken back, she said, no. And he looked her in the eye across his desk and he said, pride, dirty, stinking pride. To that, she got up and stomped out of his office with the parting comment, I will never support this church again. Dr. Shepson shared with me that for the next period of time, he was sick in his stomach, and I can only imagine how that must have felt. He could only pray that he had done the right thing. About a week later or so, she came back into his office and she apologized. And she said, you're right. My problem is pride. Dirty, stinking pride. In the time that I have left this morning, I'd like to share with you three steps to overcoming interpersonal conflict. These steps will work in our marriages. They'll work in our relationships with our children. They will work in our interpersonal relationships at our place of employment. And in fact, they'll work in all our relationships. These three steps come from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Those verses say, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray for just a second. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to share from Romans 12 and I ask you, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out on me and that you would move amongst the congregation. Father, I have trouble slurring my words and not saying things correctly, and I just ask you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, to move mightily. And I thank you, Jesus, for everything. Amen. Those three steps are first the positive, which is presentation. Second is negative, which is conformity. And the last, the third step, is the necessary, which is transformation. So let's start with number one, the positive, which is the presentation. 
Paul says to us, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The word present is an interesting word in Greek. It is the word peristemi. It means to place beside or near, to present or to place a person. This is particularly important. To place a person at another person's disposal. Did you ever notice that the Apostle Paul and other New Testament Christians often referred to themselves as bondservants of Christ? Originally, the term bondservant had the same meaning as slave or servant. It was a person who was bond in bondage or was owned by another person. But very early in the Bible, the term bondservant began to take on the meaning of love. Deuteronomies, which is the fifth book in the entire Bible, number five out of 66, tells us that the term bond, what the bo term bondservant came to mean. It says this, Deuteronomies 15, verses 16 and 17, and it shall come about if he, meaning a slave who is about to be set flee, free, says to you, I will not go out for you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you, then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. My friends, this is a beautiful picture of love. The slave is about to be set free. The owner is about to grant the slave what every person wants, the ability to exercise self-will and to govern their own lives. But the slave says, no, no, master, I love you and I love your household. I do not want to go free. I want to remain your servant forever. At that point, the, the master picks up an awl, which is like a steel nail. And he backs the servant up against the doorpost door of his house and he runs that all through the servant's ear. The servant becomes marked for life as the possession of that master. When Paul says, present yourself to God, he is saying voluntarily give yourself to the master of all masters. Give yourself to Jesus totally and without holding anything back. He is saying, forsake your own self-will and accept God's will for your life. Paul is asking us to make ourselves bondservants, not because of obligation, not because of what we can get out of it, not for any other reason than love. My friends, in the modern church, we have come to believe that prayer and singing and taking up an offering, what would a church be without taking up an offering, as well as many other things are worship. But Paul is telling us that the giving of ourselves is actually our reasonable service of worship. R.A. Torrey, in his book, What the Bible Teaches, defines worship as the soul of a person bowing before God in adoring contemplation of himself. Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. God does not want our stuff. God wants our hearts. He wants us to give ourselves to him without reservation. The bondservant is a person who, because of love, says to God that they wish to serve him all their lives, and they give, them, they give their life to him without reservation. 
When we give ourselves to God without reservation, the master marks us for life, not with an all, but he marks us with himself. The logical question is, is what does this have to do with overcoming conflict? My friends, it has everything to do with overcoming conflict because when we present ourselves to God, we begin to put on the mind of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of the bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming, becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. The mind of Christ is the mind of the bondservant. The mind of Christ is the way of thinking that always puts others first. The mind of Christ is not selfish. The mind of Christ is not conceited. The mind of Christ is not proud. But the mind of Christ is the mind of love. In Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, which are the two verses before the one I just read, Paul tells us what the mind of Christ looks like when we are dealing with other people. Those verses say this, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. My friends, there are very, very, very few things worth arguing or fighting about. When we put on the mind of Christ and give ourselves to Jesus as bondservants, we come to recognize the futility of arguing about how the toothpaste tube is squeezed, or what's for dinner, or the kind of car that we'll buy, or who should fold the clothes or do the laundry, or that person that just cut us off as we were driving down the street, or the myriad of other things that annoy us. We put annoyances aside in order to to, to serve and to love. When we put on the mind of Christ, we do not merely look out for ourselves, but we look out for others. Paul is not telling us that we should not hold our children, children accountable for their actions. Paul is not saying that we should not stand up for biblical righteousness. He is saying that when we put on the, Christ, on the mind of Christ, we take on a Christ-like perspective. Paul is saying that we begin to see through the eyes of Jesus, and Jesus always puts others first. One day his disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God, and Jesus took the opportunity to teach them and us a very valuable lesson. Luke 22 verses 25 and 26 says, and he said to them, and by extension he's saying to you and to I, the Gentiles or the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. Rather, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the one who is the leader must act like the servant. Jesus always put the needs of others before his own needs and wants. Jesus, the maker and master of the universe, humbled himself to wash the feet of his disciples, and he is calling us to a life of service towards others. 
When we take on the mind of Jesus, we surrender our wills and we begin to see the needs of others at the very least as important as our needs. And maybe when we really surrender to Jesus, we see other people's needs as more important than our own. And that brings us to our second point, the negative, which is conformity. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. The word, the Greek word for conform is the word suske matizo. The word, this word is a verb, an action word, but this word is made up of two smaller words, soon and schema. Soon is a, is a preposition that primarily denotes union. And schema is an interesting word, it's a noun, but it, it has the meaning of everything that is included in our manner of life, our actions, the way we talk. It even includes subtle things like our nonverbal expressions, the way we stand and our facial expressions and our body expressions. When soon and schema are joined together, they literally mean united to anything that makes us up as an individual. Paul is saying that we are not to be united in manner, action, talk, nonverbal expressions, or anything else like those who live for worldly things. We are not to conform ourselves to the pattern of life that is indicative to people who do not know Jesus as their Savior. Paul is saying that because we are Christians and because we have become bondservants of Jesus, we are to be different. Our actions, our words, our lifestyles are not, met, are, are, are not to be found in appearance like those who live in the world. Our manner of life, our words, and our actions are to be like those of Jesus. The Apostle John in his first epistle says many things about what it looks like to be a Christian. He says that if we are a Christian and we harbor hate, then we're still in darkness. John says that we are not to love the world. If we love the world or the things in the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. John talks about abiding in Christ. Abiding means to sojourn or to continue or to remain. It has the connotation of permanence. When we abide in Christ, we are steadfast in our resolution to live for Jesus and to live like Jesus. John goes on to tell us to practice righteousness because Jesus is righteous. And then John tells us that we are to be people who love others, not like the world loves, but again, like Jesus loves. The economy of God is very different than the economy of the world. The world says to be rich and powerful is good. The world says to be strong is, and in charge is great. The world says, do not allow others to push you around. But Jesus says, the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says, blessed are the gentle. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure of heart, blessed are the peacemaker, and blessed are those are you when, when people persecute you because of your love for Jesus. The world says, get the most out of life and relationships that you can. Jesus says, give yourself to others and in all relationships, look out for the other person. The apostle Paul 
gives us an absolute concrete real life example of what it looks like to give your life to another person. In 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about the most intimate of marriage relationships. The, Paul, the world says that we should get all we can out of intimacy. God says we should look first and foremost at our spouse. Listen to Paul's advice about marriage intimacy. It is absolutely, totally, 100% contrary to the way that the world sees intimacy. Paul says the husband should, show, should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. And then he says something that is absolutely, diametrically, 100% opposite of what the world is saying today. He says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. In other words, we are to enter into intimacy with our spouse thinking about what is good for our spouse, not thinking about what is good for ourselves. Paul and Jesus agree that fulfillment in all relationships is achieved when we give ourselves to another person. This is the key to marriage success, and by extension, it's the key to success in life. Always, always, always consider the feelings and desires of other persons. If we totally present ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice, then, then we, will not be permitting our, we will not be putting ourselves first, but we will be putting our master, the one we have pledged our undying love to, the one we have voluntarily given ourselves to as a bondservant, that is Jesus. If we do this, I can guarantee you that God will teach us how to, how to put our marriages our families, and all interpersonal relationships in, prop, in a proper framework, and we will see conflict greatly diminish in our lives. And that brings us to our third point, the necessary, which is transformation. Paul says, but be transformed. You know, I, I spent years studying Greek, and this is probably one of my very favorite Greek words. It's the Greek word metamorpho. I know that as soon as I said that, some of you know what it means. Metamorpho is the word that we get our word metamorphosis from. This word literally means to be changed to another form, to be transformed. My friends, the little bracelet that says WWJD, what would Jesus do, is not just a piece of jewelry. For the person who desires to be transformed by the love of Jesus, it is a way of life. It is the question we ask when we enter into all of life's relationships. It is the question we ask when we are confronted with conflict. As we grow in Jesus, this becomes our life's main goal, to do, to do and to act like Jesus. I saw a picture of a road sign on Facebook the other day. It said, if the Bible says it, it really doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. The question is not what do I think or what do you think? For the person who desires to live and walk with Jesus, the question is what would Jesus do? All other questions fade away in comparison to this all-important question. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5:17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. 
a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. When we come to know Jesus as our Savior, we are changed. We become new creations. That's metamorphosis. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us and we begin to put on the attributes of Jesus. My friends, do you have relationships that are less than all they should be? Are you a person who is easily offended and way too often easily flips to defensive mode? Is it way too easy for you to become argumentative? Are you estranged from someone because of some past argument or bad experience? Whatever your situation is, Jesus is calling us to present ourselves to him. Jesus is calling us to put on the mi his mind and become his bondservant. Jesus is calling us to forsake the way of the world, the way the world does things and sees things and begin doing and seeing things the way he does them and he sees them. And Jesus is calling us all to go through the metamorphosis of his transforming love. There is an old expression that says, if we continue to do the same thing in the same way, then we will most likely get the same result. My friends, if you are tired of doing the same old thing in the same old way and getting the same old results, then I encourage you to put on Jesus and live for him. There is an old Keith Green song that has become a meaningful prayer for me. It is entitled, My Eyes Are Dry. The words are, my eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. My friends, as Tim comes to lead us in that song, I encourage you to make it your prayer today and to take this opportunity to surrender to Jesus. Tell him that because of love, you wish to be his bondservant. I encourage you to examine your own life to see where you have allowed yourself to be conformed to the way the world sees things. And I encourage you to allow Jesus to transform you into his image. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.